for example, if it was sound, um, we could be looking at the sound of nostalgia, where we would be trying to, you know, stimulate something a little like Proust, where where you would try and play, I don't know, uh, ice cream van noise, which for every child in the UK, as soon as you hear that noise, you associate it with happiness, with reward, with childhood, with fun, with deliciousness. So it's, if we if we choose that, then we would base a dish around that. The whole idea of the guest having that moment, having that feeling, because those are the feelings we, you kind of take with you in your life. Those are the ones that have the real value, whether it is an ice cream van or a free Michelin star meal. It's um, it's it's unlocking those moments with the guests that um, that we're really driving to do. Music and food are both important cultural expressions of different communities. They are part of rituals, they are elements that support the creation of bonds among people, and they are a more direct way of communication compared to language, for example. But music and sounds can also trigger a different sensory outcome when we taste food. So what are the connections between food and music from a cultural perspective? And how do soundscape and music influence our taste and flavor perception? Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food system. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. Today we talk about the relationship between food and music. In the first half of the episode, we will dig into the socio-cultural aspects of food and music with Simone Campa, director of the Orchestra Terra Madre, and Leonardo Prieto Dorantes, sociologist, multi-instrumentalist and composer. But please stick around until the end, because in the second half of the episode, we will discuss from a gastronomy perspective how sound can influence the way we perceive food with Daniel Pritchard, artistic director at the Fat Duck Group. First of all, let's meet Simone Campa, who has collaborated with Slow Food for many years, starting from the creation of the Orchestra Terra Madre. This orchestra is based in Turin, and it embraces musicians from different countries and cultures. I met Simone at Terra Madre 2022, which is the biggest event that Slow Food organizes every two years, bringing together food producers and activists from all over the world to promote a good, clean and fair food system. I'm Simone Campa, I'm the director of the Orchestra Terra Madre. I'm a musician, researcher, and a sound designer and sound therapist. So everything about sound and vibrations. What is sound therapist? What does it mean? Sound therapy means developing the use of sound vibration for wellness and health and for meditation, for dance, but in a holistic way soundscape okay and uh, Simone um, I think the idea of the orchestra of Terra Madre is super interesting but I'm really curious to know how everything started and how you managed to bring all these people from different countries different music cultures together yes in uh, in 2014 
we had this idea with uh, Carlo Petrini to bring music into the heart of uh, Terra Madre, Salone del Gusto. And uh, we started to you know, organize uh, uh, concerts uh, and uh, street parades for uh, the official ceremonies, both opening or uh, closing ceremonies, bringing uh, together uh, professional musicians from all over the world and uh, also amatorial musicians, I mean, uh, not professional. And, uh, well, this is how the experience of Orchestra Terra Madre was born. And uh, so, so, so at that point, they were just coming here for the event? And then you, you train them before the parade or before the event? It was a mix. It was a mix of uh, professional musicians already working with me in uh, some different projects. I'm talking about uh, multicultural and ethnic music uh, uh, project. And um, meeting and playing together with people trained especially for, uh, for street parades and uh, with per- mainly percussions. So. We had some easy workshops just to train uh, those people. And uh, yes, we really could experience uh, how uh, music can uh, bring together, can link uh, uh, professional and unprofessional musicians together, uh, enjoying the spirit of Terra Madre. And but how practically do you make uh, these musicians with so many different backgrounds play together because I guess that not all of them are actually reading like music sheets and yeah they really come from different music cultures so how do you do these workshops how do you make them play together working on uh, a repertoire of uh, songs and folk tunes from the uh, ethnic and traditional uh, music from different countries uh, uh, means not reading uh, sh- music sheets at all at all so the first element which uh, join people from all over the world music- musician and not musician in the, is uh, the rhythm rhythm and the drum so uh, starting to work on drumming and on uh, rhythmical pattern patterns very easy rhythmical patterns Uh, it was the easiest way to put people uh, working together and playing together. We have a big community of um, musicians from Senegal and from Burkina Faso and from South Italy too. So we started melting uh, Tarantella and Pizzica, uh, which are music uh, from uh, South Italy, dance music uh, from South Italy, with African drumming. And... Um, What do you think is the connection between food and music? Is there any? Food is a part of uh, any good community ritual and music is part of any 
important community rituals. So food and music can create uh, the right uh, alchemy to let people enjoy community life and community moments. This was Simone Campa, director of the orchestra Terra Madre. And now let's deep dive a bit more into the cultural aspect of music and food with Leonardo Prieto Dorantes. Leonardo is a sociologist, a multi-instrumentalist and composer from Mexico City. He's also my husband-to-be, and he has composed most of the music you listen in our podcast, starting from our unique jingle. Today, instead, he is one of the podcast guests to tell us more about the relationship between food and music. I've been working always with this in mind, that how music is related with culture and with identity. That was the, the main subject that I researched. Um, I made my, my thesis in identity, collective identity, and how the changes in music ha- have an impact on the building up of the identity. Because uh, most of the traditional music, the folk music, that is the music that I play, is music that is not exactly meant to be as a part of a show in a stage. It's more music that is part of the daily life, mm-hmm. as a cultural expression and linked in, in this sense with many elements, as with food, religion, uh, community parties, etc. So for me it's really interesting how music reflects all these elements of the culture and how it's also fed by all these elements. Leonardo has focused his research on different streams of traditional music in Latin America, how they all influence each other. The music that I mainly research is the music in Latin America, which was really connected since the colonial times because of the roots of uh, exchange between Spain, basically, and uh, all the Latin American countries, starting from Mexico, going to the Antilles, Colombia, and sometimes around to Philippines. And they had basically two main routes, uh, one in the side of the Colombia and one in the other side that arrived sometimes to the Philippines. So you can see in the way we dance, in the way we dress, in the food, in the poetry that is inside the music, a lot of connections between all these countries. No, You, you mm-hmm. can track, uh, I don't know, maybe a cuarteta, which is a, a poetic uh, form, which is four uh, verse of eight syllables and you can find it in a Mexican song but also in a Colombian song but as well you can find this in the way we dance and and how we link the music with our daily life and in this sense also with uh, with food no when you told me about this interview i was thinking you know, like there are many many songs with names of uh, food or animals or fruits or vegetables in 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 the song jarocho you can say many you know el coco what is song jarocho well, Son Jarocho is the traditional music from <coughs> the south of Veracruz, and this state is the state that is in the Gulf, in the coast. And Son Jarocho have a lot of, well, it's a music that is um, all the time talking about the environment. They talk a lot about, a lot about the animals, but also about food. No? You have, for instance, El Son de la Guanabana, which is a really nice fruit that we eat mm-hmm. with bones inside. El Coco, which is, uh, well, it's it can be two, two things, no? It's el coco is like a fruit, you know, the like coconut, coconut, the yeah. coconut. Mm-hmm. But also they say that it's a, a bird, 
who flies, no? and they cook it. Mm. And actually, the birds, the, the birds say, no, uh, the cocoa is really nice if you cook it like this and like that. You have another song called Las Cocineras, which is uh, the, the cook woman. No? Uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there are many others in the song Cubano, which is a, a, a music style that is really related with, uh, with the song Jarocho. You have El Manicero, which is a song which is talking about the guy who sells the mani. In Colombia, you have you have la bullerengue, which is a rhythm that they play in important situations like uh, when women uh, become uh, adults and they are older than 15 and they have a dance, a special dance where they start to touch the belly announcing that they are fertile now and, and they can have uh, children. Uh, but these uh, these rhythms also is used for another uh, another things and one of these is uh, food and they, there is a song called La Verdolaga and it's the story basically of this vegetable that grows and, mm -hmm. and tells how they cut it and how do you eat it and, and yeah like this you can name many 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 songs. Yo necesito moler la yuca para el pastel. Yo necesito moler la yuca para el pastel. Oye, la yuca para el pastel. La quiero moler. La yuca para el pastel. 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 Oye, la yuca para el pastel. Actually, something that is for me really interesting is that there is a tradition of el pregón. El pregón, when you say pregón, <coughs> will be an improvisation that you have in these styles uh, in a specific part of the song. No? For instance, they say in the Montuno, which is the climax of the song, you make an improvisation of the flute, and then you have a coro, and then el pregón, which is an improvisation of the singer. Pot pregón is also when the people who is selling food in the street shout, no? and in Mexico and all these Latin American countries, very different than here, you cannot see in Europe these things. People shout no? and say, hey, guayabas, guayabas, bruta, llévelo, elotes. <laughs> As sociologists, why do you think these people are making songs about mm. food uh, as part of like these big uh, musical streams? I think these music styles are much more than music styles, are like a cultural expression linked with the daily life. No? So um, that's actually what one of the things that I love about this music, no? that is really an expression of their religion, of the way how they think, they tell the stories about a guy who was selling newspapers or about the bird that they saw flying or about the, the sea. It's like a storytelling about the, the cultural environment, mm -hmm. not the context. And I think in, the, in our countries, food is something really important. I mean, life is going around food sometimes, no? and, mm -hmm. and about the gathering and about the fact of being together, eating, and it's, a, it's an element that, as music, uh, gather people no? and make community and social bonds.
And now we have a question for Leonardo from our Telegram group. Jorit would like to hear what is the most special memory where music really added to the food experience and vice versa. Oof. No, it's difficult because now I was thinking, you know, like um, I remember I, w- I we played a lot in the Festival del Mole. Like every year we will call to play there, no? And there was a stage with people playing all day and, and it's huge, you know, like, I don't know, like 300 meters of like a square with just tables with different people selling mole. In uh, Puebla? Or no, 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 in, um, in Mexico City. Maybe it's good to explain also what is mole. Yeah, mole is like a really dense sauce that we use f- for many, many plates, dishes. And it's made with chocolate and, well, the process, you can tell it actually, better than me, but <laughs> she learned to do it very well. So um, I think we can discuss mole and its cultural importance in another episode of this podcast. However, for today's discussion, I'm thrilled to shift gears and explore the world of gastronomy. Recently, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Daniel Pritchard, the Associate Creative Director at the Fed Tag, which is renewed as one of the finest restaurants worldwide, owned by the legendary chef Heston Blumenthal. How kind of drive the research, drive the creativity um, with the rest of the senior team. And then um, following that, we can come up with new ideas, kind of new things to learn that we can then apply in the restaurants. At the Fed Duck, they push the boundaries of culinary artistry to create a multi-sensory experience by intertwining elements like culinary art, cherished memories and sensory triggers. They take us on a remarkable journey that even incorporates sound and music. And so, Daniel, to begin with, I would like to ask you something about your own background and um, how you got to the Fed Duck. So, um, kind of started off mainly with cooking when I was a teenager. I was I was a pot wash in a restaurant, and uh, and kind of from there, I just started to do kind of the cold larder section, help out on the weekends when I wasn't at school, and um, kind of got the bug a little bit um and then became a chef till i was in my early 20s and then following that i did a food science degree at the university of reading and uh i kind of went there because i wanted to know more about what was actually happening when you cook i mean there's lots of folklore there's lots of recipes passed down from nonna if you're italian and uh and everybody uh, everybody has different answers. So I was uh, working with different chefs and I realized I kind of got to the stage where I wasn't learning as much as I wanted to learn because everybody had a different idea once you start to kind of scratch below the surface. So I went to, to university to kind of solve that problem and kind of try and find out scientifically what, what was actually happening when you cook and when you eat. Uh, following that, I then... Uh, went to work at the Fantech Experimental Kitchen. So then I've been with Heston ever since for about 11 years. And then um, obviously that, you know, being inquisitive and scientific, but also a chef, it's probably one of the only places, if not the best place in the world to go and work. For our listeners and for myself, I would like to ask you um, a bit how 
does it work because like i have an image in my mind of this like a kitchen lab when you experiment a lot of stuff and then sometimes uh, one of these dishes becomes actually a dish that you serve at the restaurant or how, how does the process and the place look like can you tell us a little bit about it effectively we try and put ourselves in in the position of the guest so um i always like to say if you think about um, Einstein's famous thought experiment where he imagined he was sat on light traveling through space and time and that helped him understand what was you know what was practically happening there we try and imagine ourselves in somebody's head while they're eating or drinking or relaxing in a restaurant and if you start with that viewpoint you kind of go what what are we going to do so what is it that is interesting as an experience so kind of at the top of that is is consciousness right so we're all conscious uh of the inexperience or at all points during our life but then a lot of a lot of the stimulus is subconscious so what happens is you'll have a moment that suddenly of, of conscious revelation i know it sounds quite artsy fartsy but effectively it can be something as simple as a bacon sandwich or or literally just a, a cup of tea cup of coffee and um I suppose Price Madeline is the most famous version of that. And uh, and so when that moment comes, you're su suddenly conscious of an experience. So in the fact that particularly we like to call it a, a beating heart. So every dish has a beating heart. And that's, that's the driving force behind the dish. So we have a framework of all the different stimulations and, uh, and experiences that someone can have. And then we um, we kind of try and pick one or two of those and really focus the dish in on it. So, for example, if it was sound, um, we could be looking at the sound of nostalgia, where we would be trying to you know stimulate something a little like Proust, where where you would try and play I don't know uh, ice cream van noise, which for every child in the UK, as soon as you hear that noise. You associate it with happiness, with reward, with childhood, with fun, with deliciousness. So it's, if we if we choose that, then we would base a dish around that. The whole idea of the guest having that moment, having that feeling, because those are the feelings we, you kind of take with you in your life. Those are the ones that have the real value, whether it is an ice cream van or a free Michelin star meal. It's um, it's it's unlocking those moments with the guests that. Um, that we're really driving to do. It can be a sound that triggers a memory. Um, it can be all sorts of other senses. But the idea is that you would lead through to that moment and uh, and have effectively, you become consciously aware of it. Everyone's taste perception is different. So you can't kind of have the first bite of every dish where someone goes, mm, oh my God, that's amazing. Because we're all so different. But and if you had 10 courses in a row, of mm, that's delicious, you'll probably find it's quite repetitive. So we try and try and have different types of stimulus so that it, it kind of keeps you entertained, I suppose. And there is one dish in particular that it's like really also working on the relationship with sound and taste, which is the sound of the sea. And um, the idea, if I understood correctly, is that you have uh, like headphones that are somehow connected to the dish and that it listen to the sounds of the sea itself. And then this triggers, um, also in that case, 
a memory or an association with seaside which gives a special effect on what you are actually tasting or can you tell us more about this dish how where the idea came from and how actually this uh, process works you know we talk about it a lot more complexly now than maybe they used to when it was first on the menu but but the original idea came from heston exploring with scientists um in the realm of perception and he um he came across a few scientists that were that were talking about sound and then he started to try to understand how sounds kind of fitted into people's you know sense of perception the basic part which um which people often forget which is that you're always hearing when you're eating so for example um when you eat green beans um if you slightly undercook them, which chefs have a tendency to do because they're always looking to make it as al dente as possible, when you eat it, you get this squeaky noise from your teeth. And it's really unpleasant because it just, we all, we all know that noise intrinsically and it kind of instantly goes, oh, this isn't very nice. So there's, there's the kind of sound part that he started with, which was just, why is it that a crunchy biscuit is this or a potato crisp or or even a lack of sound why is it when you have a chocolate mousse on its own with no texture it seems less stimulating and after the third bite you're kind of a bit bored so leading from those kind of experiments where he's understanding more practically you know in the in the eating of a food how it uh, how it affects our perception of the flavor um then it then it became you know about more about context more about understanding different ways that the sound could affect it that you know that wasn't just adapting the crispiness of the product so, so what happens then what what if we amplify the crispy noise um, and then does that make the food taste better um, so from that obviously in a in a creative way it's like well what other sounds can we do so i think initially he started with um with bacon and egg ice cream one of his famous early dishes and he tried playing the sound of kind of a farmyard that was bacony sound and then um and then he was playing the noise of the chicken and then wondering whether people would focus more on the bacon when they hear the pig or the chicken when they hear the chicken and it was really interesting how people's focus would then lead them to kind of take a different flavor from the dish and um and I suppose it was it was a little simplistic to edit the food like that because um because at a, you know at a restaurant of that level you should already have the food tasting the way you you want it to um but then uh but then by kind of exploring those places effectively their places and times then um then sound of the sea came around of what if we did a dish of the seaside while playing the soundscape of the sea um so almost instantly the dish was a huge huge hit um nowadays when we think about it there's probably a few different ways it works you know a few different things that we now have in our toolkit so the one is the um we kind of prime people with it um so you actually get the headphones a couple of minutes before the um the dish arrives so it's almost meditative So you have these kind of, you know, um, experiences uh, with meditation. Uh, this one called Shin Yoku, which is like 
bathing in the woods, which is a Japanese meditation. Um, so you're effectively bathing in the seaside. You're you're kind of you're there, and the and the main stimulus for headphones on is just to be kind of transported. I quite often close my eyes. I mean, a lot of guests close their eyes without thinking because you're just you're just kind of letting your mind take yourself there. So that kind of already puts you in that kind of place and time. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is is that it's um it's especially meditative because. Uh, because when you put headphones on in a restaurant, you kind of then drown out the background noise, but you also, you don't talk to each other anymore because, because you can't hear. So it's quite, it becomes quite a personal moment because it's not so much about you talking with your, you know, with your companions. It's more about each of you individually having a moment to listen to that sound. So after that, we obviously, the dish arrives, um, in the little base of the of the dish we have some sand and pebbles from the beach and if uh if we know which kind of beach the guest likes we can offer them one with pebbles or one with sand and one with super white sand one with shells just to help them kind of associate with their memories and then the dish has a, an edible sand and a sea foam that just kind of takes you right to that place and then uh and then people now sometimes you know they can tell you exactly where it took them so, you know, I'm, I was on a beach in this place and it reminded me of these things. And, uh, and that's an amazing thing for people to experience sat in a small converted pub in the English countryside. And from really... Um taste perspective do you think that by listening for example to the sound of the sea people perceive the dish more salty or crispy i don't think so or maybe uh, they feel the scent a bit more <laughs> sandy or uh yeah i think i think it has a massive effect just because it does take people to that place so the um it is quite briny um we use a lot of seaweed so it has that kind of so iodine kind of seaside kind of odors to it. So it makes it very briny, seasidey, but also very salty and umami. So it kind of it really takes you to, you know, I guess imagining a mouthful of seawater. So it actually changes your perception of how that dish is, where we actually have to be very careful that you know there's a fine balance where people struggle to eat it because they just find it is too much like the seaside. But so like, because you actually eat also, I mean, what you eat looks like the seaside. Like you eat the sand, then you eat, I guess, fishes, you eat the sea. Is it like that? Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, so it's kind of like the foam that you would find on the edge of the beach. But then um, there's effectively it's, um, it's some cured, some cooked fish. Um, and some kind of forage sea vegetables sat on on a on a kind of sand that has um, things like fish oil uh, and then it's kind of umami and a little bit a little bit crunchy. We've got some little cereally bits in there that are kind of a bit more crunchy, a bit grainy, so that you feel a little bit of texture. So it's 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 as much as uh, as we can make it seem like eating 
sound and the seaside as possible without it being off-putting. So, um, so it doesn't have any residual graininess. It just kind of disappears in your mouth. So, um, because I think, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I accidentally uh, ate an egg mayonnaise sandwich by the beach. And that egg mayonnaise sandwich had sand in it. And then I, I just remember that it was one of the worst food experiences of my childhood. And then if I ever even found any sort of grittiness in the egg mayonnaise sandwich, I would freak out and not be able to eat it anymore. So, Yeah, I get the feeling. <laughs> yeah, so cool. One of the most recent experiments at the FedTuck, which deals with music and food, has to do with wine tasting, and it takes place in a very particular setting. Reopened the FedTuck uh, with a new menu format in January of this year. And, um, and one of the things that we've had and always wanted to use, but kind of it's always been a little bit on the back burner, was uh, we have this amazing wine cellar upstairs. And um, the wine cellar is equipped with custom made lights and a kind of a theater light and a projector if we want to install a projector. And, um, and it allows us to completely control the environment. So this is something that we can't do in the restaurant without kind of disturbing the other guests on the other tables. So um, so what we uh, decided to do was decided to um, start to do kind of an experience up there during the meal. So right now as part of the meal, every every table will go up to the cellar and uh, and we'll do some experiments on on flavor perception. At the moment that experiment is um, is based on wine and music. Okay. Um, so, a few years ago, I found a, a science paper exploring wine and music and how um, the different tracks you play can have a different effect on people's experience with wine. So wine's a super complicated um, thing to taste. I mean, it takes you know years and years to train as a sommelier because there's so many competing odors and tastes and you know other kind of sensory interactions with when you drink it. So um, the paper found that by playing different songs, people found wines more harsh or more bitter. And so, uh, and so that completely lined up with Heston's thinking on, on food and sound and multisensory flavor perception. So, um, so he was immediately super excited about this paper and uh, we did lots of different tests with lots of different things to replicate it. So, um, so as this is kind of Heston's favorite experience and we're in the fat ducks amazing wine cellar we uh we decided to to replicate the uh experiment conditions to a certain extent so we um the guests will go up uh we'll present them with some wine um they'll have the opportunity to kind of taste the wine um and kind of see what they think kind of register in their brains what they think the wine tastes like and then we were we have the option of two different songs um so one is uh, Carmina Burana, uh, which is probably most well known in in society as being from The Exorcist. So it's kind of okay. It's it's very it's a very powerful song. So this is um, it kind of it slowly builds and it has this point where it just kind of explodes with like a wall of noise that's very like pulsing and intense. So we. Um, we paired that song with like a, a flashing red light. Um, so the rest of the room is quite dark at this point and you just have a table 
um, and then this kind of flashing red light is, is hitting the table while the music's kind of directly above you. We have like surround sound speakers directly above you and they kind of rain the music down on you. And um, then you're encouraged to drink and kind of notice the flavor. And the second one is kind of in the in the opposite direction. So it's um it's Waltz in the Flowers. It's quite a um a soft classical piece that kind of makes you feel um very relaxed, like you're in a uh, in a kind of summer garden. You know that makes people kind of try the wine, and then um it should be kind of smoother, rounder, more enjoyable. Um, of course, everybody's different, right? So, um, so everybody gets different reactions. So the main, the main point that we want people to kind of take from it, the beating heart, as I mentioned earlier, is that all is kind of not what it seems when you're, when you're eating and drinking and in larger life, there's always, there's always things that are happening that you're not quite aware of that can change, change your perception. It can nudge you into a certain feeling or a certain behavior and, um, and the more you can be aware of that, the the more you can maybe embrace it, and uh, and also just the noticing it. If you open your mind to these things, you'll discover this. There's a hundred million things that you can do with food and drink to uh, to connect with people. Super interesting. I'm not sure if I would try the the one with the exorcist song. <laughs> I think it would be a bit too strong for me. Maybe I would think like I'm drinking blood and not <laughs> wine. <laughs> I would go more for like the summer garden uh, version. <laughs> I really enjoyed recording this podcast and I hope you guys really liked it as well. I would like to give special thanks to our guests Simone Campa, Leonardo Preto Dorantes and Daniel Pritchard. Since this is an episode about food and music, you have listened to a lot of musical pieces and it's fair to give credits to the composers as well. First of all, thanks to Simone Campa and the Orchestra Terra Madre for the piece Afro Tamuriata. Thanks to Leonardo Preto for our jingle and his group Sondia Key for the piece Simona in el Mercado. A special thanks also to the Colombian musical group Las Mucharejas for the piece La Yuca para el Pastel. If you like this episode, I invite you to share it with your network and to join our Telegram channel to send your feedback, comments and questions. The link is in the podcast description. While finishing this episode, instead of our usual outro, I let you listen to an extract from another piece of the Orchestra Terra Madre, which is called Afro Tarantella. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao! Prima sera e voglia notte